show, we're going to discuss, dissect, and maybe even disagree about the best practices for superior judging and running of DCC RPG games. What are the most important judging do's and don'ts? That's what we're going to try and answer on this episode of Spellburn. And to answer those questions, I'm Judge Jim, and with me tonight are my other three co-host judges, Judge Job. Hello, dudes and dudettes. Judge Jeffrey. (laughs) Hey, everyone. And the lovely Judge Jen. Hey, guys. So, let's take it to the tavern. And the first rule of bartending is this. G-B-T-B. Go beyond the book. Go beyond the book. What do you have? Heineken! F*** that Tavern talk. What did we do in gaming this past week? Let's start with you, Job. Well... Uh, my home group is is all hot and heavy about checking out 5e now, so um, I picked up the starter set, and um, I'm reading through that. There's some pretty cool stuff in there, so uh, we haven't actually played yet, but we're, we're going to play a game. Um, I, I suspect we're going to, you know, uh, reel back to DCC real quick, but um, I'll, I'll definitely let them, uh, you know, take it for a test drive and see how it goes. Um, that was about it for my my week in gaming, grabbing a copy of the starter set and reading up on the rules. I mean, the the word on the street is they're pretty decent. I thought yeah. it was pretty interesting. There was some pretty interesting stuff in there. I mean, I, I like I never suspected, you know, like some of the stuff about um, gender issues and some other stuff that that made it into the rules. I never thought that Hasbro would <laughs> would let a, a book like that go out. So um, I, I thought that was actually uh, you know pretty pretty courageous and forward thinking. So um, I could I give them a big thumbs up for that. Yeah, I picked up. Uh, I downloaded the basic set, of course, and then I picked up the uh, the starter set. Uh, got it from the local game shop here in Columbus, and uh, I actually had to get it on order. They'd sold out of their first run of it, and then. Uh, I had to get it on order, and they called me 
last week and I grabbed it. So it, it looked pretty cool on initial read. Like I said, I haven't played it either, but uh looks good. Yeah, I probably steal some ideas for my DCC game when we <laughs> roll back to that. <laughs> I mean, the main dog I have in that hunt is it will bring lots and lots of new gamers into the hobby. Potential recruits. Yes, they are. Yes. Fresh, raw recruits. I I like the same part you liked. I, I noted that thing where they uh, dealt with some of the uh, gender diversity. I thought that was excellent and very brave of them to put in there. And I really liked the credits at the end where they thanked and credited everybody who ever had anything to do with the game. Along with yes. that disclaimer. I don't have it in front of me, but the disclaimer was hysterical. Oh, yeah, with the Tomb of Horrors. And- yeah, that was great. That was awesome. <laughs> Wizards of the Coast is not responsible for hands lost by being stuck in a green devil face in a dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Well, how about you, Jeffrey? What have you been doing? Uh, we have my normal online group. Uh, we... Uh, let's see. They sort of reached one of the climaxes of the campaign. Probably they uh, broke their way into the Overlord's stronghold uh, within the city, and uh, they thought they were having a really easy time of it. And they were, because I'm still adjusting to the seventh level power level. Uh, but that's okay because I'd planned this what I call the safe room. They like to call it the cheat room. Um, but the odds were certainly stacked against their favor, and so that turned out uh, – we actually spent one session just on the combat in that room, which is probably the longest DCC combat I've ever run. But a lot of it's because there was a lot of intricate things going on. Uh, I really hampered their magic through some special effects in the safe room they had. But it was a lot of fun. Had a good time. Uh, so that was cool. And they're a higher level now? They are seventh level. Oh, yeah, that so, would be a long combat. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, they're sitting at seventh level, and I just had a lot of things in the room that – terrain type stuff that made it tricky for them to close quickly to the combatants because the the warrior in the game now just he hits hard and like all the time uh the deed die being so high really really helped him hit hard so that's a little different the casters are able to cast two spells you know every round if they want um so they get some spectacular spell results so you know the overlord being the smart guy he is had a safe room which you know helped keep the odds in his favor uh, so that was pretty fun. There was all sorts of little captions and quotes going on various social media with cheat room hashtags and me always coming back, safe room, you mean safe room. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was cool. It was fun. And then my local group is that we've actually picked up playing Pathfinder uh, again, which is a, a welcome respite from the sci-fi stuff we were doing before. And the GM for that's running Keep on the Borderlands, and we did Tomb of the Lizard King uh, last week. So he's doing, he's taking Pathfinder and running some of the old school modules with it and stuff, which is sort of fun. Uh, so that's been a good time as well. So those those were my games since our last episode. I'm not a big, as you know, uh, live play podcast listener, but I may have to start, I may have to pick up your group's live play podcast that said irontavern.com because uh, my group is starting to get up. They, they are ranging from third and a guy had just gone to six who got a lucky hit for the deck of many things and they're starting to just blow through everything I have for them. So I, I, I think I need to pay closer attention to how you're handling your group so I can get some tips and tricks. Yeah, it's a big jump. Uh, it's a, the, especially the sixth, sixth level, seventh level right in there. It gets it, it's a, The power curve definitely seems to take a bit of an acceleration there. It's still fun. Great time. Uh, it's just I need to stop thinking small, normal size, normal events in the world and get them into more world-changing events, I think, uh, which will be coming. 
Uh, I'll save it for my part, but they they, they terminated Glip Caro with extreme prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeffrey, you know Jeffrey too. Uh, you know, you know, when we were uh, doing the show with John last week, um, I you know I was thinking about how you actually uh, put out your own gaming material. I know it's for Swords and Wizardry, but um, do you care to you know maybe paint that a little bit on the show or mention it? What you're working on the last the last thing you put out. Sure. Uh, so I've been working on something called Iron Tavern Press, uh, sort of a spinoff of the blog. Uh, right now I've been releasing things that, that I call pocket-sized encounters, which are written for swords and wizardry, but they're easily convertible to uh, any system. In fact, some of the stuff that came out was actually written for DCC first, but then I converted back to swords and wizardry because I sort of wanted the line to follow one system for a little bit. <laughs> but uh, pocket size encounters are designed to be short little scenarios that can drop into pretty much any campaign. Usually, three, four encounters. They come with adventure seeds to help a GM get started. And then there's always a where to from here section. So if a, a GM wants to expand it or take it further, there's suggestions on how to do that. There's usually, uh, there's always maps. I include player maps, GM maps. Uh, there's a, uh, Always, usually a new monster, or there's always some set of random tables or something like that. We've got four releases out so far. Uh, got a fifth one that's in editing, getting set to go to layout. And uh, another couple of those lined up. And then uh, at some point, we'll branch in the DCC stuff, too. I've got a person that's writing something for DCC at the moment. so uh, And that'll be sort of a, more of a full-size module. So, But yeah, that's been keeping me busy, too. Nice. I, I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so Jeffrey, I, I know you're. Uh, you know you've been doing some some pretty uh, rad maps. Are you doing the the maps for the pocket size adventures too? Yeah, I've been doing all the maps for the uh, pocket size adventures. Um, and I've done some maps for. I did some uh, maps for Thick Skull Adventures. I've got some maps in there uh, for his uh, one of his modules, and I've done some other maps for uh, Christina Styles does a set of products. Uh, the, the, um, done a couple maps for her that are out and about now oh, she, waypoints she she actually did some really good um uh dcc modules back in the day like for 3.0 or 3.5 oh, yeah the old 3.5 ones yeah like tower the Stormbringer or something and a few other ones yeah. so well, that's cool. the best place to check out the uh, pocket size adventures jeffrey um, you can the best place to pick them up is probably rpg now uh i'm on there is iron tavern press and then I've also got them listed off my blog at, uh, if you just go to irontavernpress.com, you'll end up on the page and there'll be links to the uh, various adventures and uh, things like that. So far, it's been going pretty well. I've been happy with it. And we can put all those links in the web page for this episode, too. Oh, good. I don't have to bookmark all of it myself. <laughs> Thank you, Judge Jim. <laughs> just, just another part of the concierge service here at Spellburn. Exactly. Those little uh, short encounter things sound ideal because I'm constantly running into where the players happen to get through the end of an adventure module in the middle of a game. Or they just do something bizarre and unexpected and I need to stall for time until the next game. And you could drop those things you're just talking about that you've written right in there. Yeah, most of them are designed to be quick drop-ins or or for like a night when you need to present some sort of option to them that's not necessarily along the main campaign line, but just to give them some choice without derailing the whole campaign or something. Or even if you're short a player one night and you don't want to take them down the main arc so you drop a little side track for them. Ooh, Uh, yeah. yeah, Sounds perfect. Yeah, where you can run them in a night and not worry about it derailing the whole campaign, but something can get done in a session and... Um, oh man, I, I gotta tell you that you're reminding me, Jeffrey. This this uh, this 
DM uh, or GM uh, Tony Dollar. He's the guy that runs the Go Play Northwest. I played in his Stars Without Numbers game last year. And he did this awesome thing. We were we went to you know some planet or something, and I was like, oh, I want to buy some crap. So I you know I started searching through the equipment list. He just whipped out this little adventure for the people that weren't shopping. Um, it was basically it was like a a quick pickup job where um, they wanted somebody to to fly a uh, uh, like a newscaster down to some planet where there was like extreme weather. <laughs> And the the newscaster wanted to like stand in the extreme weather and be filmed. It was uh, <laughs> it was pretty funny. And the dude just just slipped this little tiny little sidetrack while I was shopping for the other players for five minutes, and then I was done shopping. I was like, okay, and then we rejoined and went on to the next thing. Wow, that's, that's brilliant! Cool. Excellent. So, Miss Jen, what was your gaming week like? Um, been a little bit quiet since getting home from the whirlwind tour and trying to. Uh, accomplish a lot of business brain things before having to turn around and leave again for Gen Con. Uh, but we were able to get back with our uh, first ed group. We get together at the house um, midweek and we're in the middle of actually playtesting a new adventure that's being done as part of the Hobby Shop Dungeon project. So that oh. got sent to, uh, to Bob for him to run it for us. Nice. So that's Ernie Gygax, and I can't pronounce Benoit Perrar. There you go. That wow, guy. Wow, that's a yes. pronunciation. Um, they're kind of my bosses now too. So um, yeah, I better know their names, right? <laughs> well, I, I I love them both. I chit chat with them on Facebook all the time. It doesn't mean I can pronounce the poor guy's name. Yeah, um, Google Hangouts for for business meetings and whatnot. They're important, but that's been pretty much it for my week. I, I'm going to be the anticlimactic one here and throw it back over to you, Jim. God, I love how everybody on the show is being so productive. Doing stuff. <laughs> um, we just played last night. The mutant murder hobos got through the end of uh, Joe, Mr. Joe Bittman's Glipcaro's Gambit, and I... I Job, I got words for you after running the end of that module. I just about <laughs> lost my mind trying to keep track of a hundred hit points of time traveling the same bad guy copied endlessly over and over again. Oh my! Yeah, the instructions are kind of crappy too. You can say it, Jim. It's okay. No, the instructions were great, and and dumb on me. I'm just my usual conceited self. I'm like, I got this, and didn't use the little handy form you put on the back of the module. Oh yeah, you oh. got expressly oh, for Jim. that. And then and then. Uh, one of my players plays a techno mage who has spell ability, so the first thing out the gate, she engages in a spell duel. So we had a five-way spell duel between five casters in the middle of all the time-traveling nonsense. So, oh, that's brilliant. How would that even work? Like, the, a spell duel, but then the spells hit the other people? Or, I mean... Uh, they wanted, you know how players are get real excited after a good game, and I was outside just eating a chocolate bar and smoking at the end of the night, trying to get <laughs> the part of my brain that I broke running it back in order, and they're just like rah 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 rah. But uh, yeah, I, how did it work? It was insane, is how it works. 
And because we all just came out of playtesting some Metamorphosis Alpha, we approached that rule set by, we're all in this together, we'll figure it out together. So as soon as the spell duel broke out, I've just got great players, and they all busted out their books, and we just figured it out together with me making rulings, you know, and judgment calls, and asking the group which way do you think is fairest. And and then they cleaned his clock. It was, But the, the adventure <laughs> was so well written, Joe, because they uh, they didn't catch on, almost didn't catch on, even at the end. Um, really? When uh, he transformed into the guy they met at the bye, very... Bye, 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 bye. Spoilers. Okay. Okay, well, all right. right. Yeah, they, they, there, they, they yeah, had a... Not all of us have been able to get our hands on that. I mean, the four of us, yes, but there are a lot of players out there that um, it's not actually for retail sale yet. It says it's only for people who run a game of uh, on the road crew. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know if people have tried it and got it. If so, then uh, let them know because I want more people to get it. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, I absolutely was running a game for the road crew as of this moment. <laughs> in that case. <laughs> okay. Oh, definitely. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I love what you did in that adventure, Joe. Uh, just my compliments to you because oh, it's, it is just sort of evolved organically. But in my uh, post-apocalyptic campaign, my players, I'm now taking them through a time-traveling trilogy that started with the game that uh, Bob and Jen, the one-off we did, and uh, the middle piece is Glip Caro's Gambit, and the third piece is going to be something I came up for them. And I'm really pleased because we're going through all the classic time travel tropes where Jen, the game you guys played in, you stumble across the time machine, and the time travel is basically just there to get you to exotic locales to have the adventures, right? Oh, exactly. Then... Uh, I don't want to, get to do spoilers, but we know what happens in Clip Carol's Gambit. You get you get to you get to see the crazy four dimensional nonlinear thing happening, which you guys ran into a little bit of it in your game, Jen, because you got to wave at yourselves up on the hill <laughs> yeah. from both sides at different times, right? Because you you came back before you left. And the third adventure that they haven't played yet, uh, they're going to uh, be sent into the past, and every one of their actions will have an impact on what they come back to when they return to their present time. Yeah, what was that about a TPK earlier this week? That was in Metamorphosis Alpha. Ah, okay. We finished up uh, the captain's table that will be published in September, uh, along with the uh, deluxe uh, hardback, and yeah, the group TPK'd, and then when I asked... the king of Elfland has not made it to uh, the the starship warden yet. <laughs> no, no, no. He would have been handy. He would have been a handy guy to have around. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jim. <laughs> no, that's a, we're all good. We're all good. It's the it's the joy of the particular group I play with. With Jen has gotten to play with most of them now too. Is they this was a TPK? It was basically a doppelganger type encounter, and the TPK couldn't have happened without the players individually role-playing their asses off. So they kind of TPK'd themselves in a, in a very cooperative fashion and it, just to see how it played. And I can't think of anything more old-school than that. One by one, they each got in on the secret and they were all about it, which is exactly how we used to play when we were youngsters. And at the end, when I asked them for feedback, you know, what's too easy, what's too hard, what maybe needs changing, they all said that the, the, the encounter that killed them was their favorite encounter. That's awesome. That's the way to do it. Just to rewind, just one second, Jim. I have a question because um, about Glicario. Did your players go right for the temple, or did they go explore? Oh, um, uh, they dorked around a little bit on one of the side quests because half the party wanted to um, befriend the snow apes, and the other half wanted to murder <laughs> murder them. 
No, I mean, when, when they get into the actual, the temple at the top, do they, because you kind of go, you land right in front of the temple, but there's some other couple of little things off to the side. Did they just run for the temple? No, no, they did not. They did not. Oh, they're, 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 they, they've been trained in the old school way, so they went on a looting sweep first. Oh, okay, yes. did they go into the outhouse? My <sighs> players did. No, they, they did. did. My my players found what you left there, and okay. it was not the first time that they have had such a thing. <laughs> only you were the nice person who gave it stats. Yes, and, and we hadn't had that before. We just had the the illusion of it. So now that I know how badly I get to screw them, it's even better. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's enough of that. Let's go send some emails. <laughs> oh, wait, we're going to uh, mention a new Kickstarter that started. Oh, yeah. We don't want to forget yeah. that. Yeah, brand spanking new. <laughs> Amazingly, none of us are writing for this one. <laughs> it's got an all-star cast. Harley Strode, Daniel Bishop. Edgar Johnson, Daniel J. Bishop, yeah. So, Job, tell us all about it. <laughs> Me? You're the highest ranking you know, minion oh, of the Dark Master here. Oh God. Okay. Um, I think this is another box set type of deal. If we, if it gets high or if it gets high enough. So, um, I haven't backed it yet, but that's just cause I haven't, um, sat down on my computer and figured out how to fix my, uh, my payment stuff. So you weren't a part of it fully funding in the first 24 hours. Like the rest no, of I wasn't, I wasn't, but I, I'm, I'm going to get in on that one though. I noticed that, you know, the, the box set is a little bit higher this time. I think last time it was 30 bucks. Now it's like 50. I don't care. I'm going to back it anyway, but... Well, what are you backing? Whatever. Whatever gets me a <laughs> box of crap. <laughs> for our listeners, it's oh. a Goodman Games <laughs> Kickstarter for the adventure Perils of the Purple Planet by Harvey yeah. Stroh. Jim, you're so much better at this stuff than me. <laughs> yes, the Kickstarter for Perils of the Purple Planet. Um, and before anybody bites our heads off... Um, it's actually been renamed a little bit, it looks like, because that's what it was listed as when we played it at Gen Con last year. Now it's Peril on the Purple Planet. Yeah, uh-huh. I keep calling it the wrong thing. <laughs> I keep calling it Peril of the Purple Planet. I always keep, I give Doug a hard time. I keep calling it Perils of the Purple Helmet. <laughs> nice. Well, you, were, you were just banging on Doug uh, about liking that uh, old art for the Jack Vance book, uh, with Kujo the Clever in it that yeah. I just blanked on the title. Eyes of the Overworld. Oh, right, right, right. Having the um, nicely phallic mushrooms. And there's a lot of those on the cover <laughs> art for Peril on the Purple Planet. Oh, Kovaxian mushrooms. There you go. Mm. <laughs> Wonderful art. Yep. Great art. It looks like on this one, 50 bucks is the complete box set. You'll receive the box set with both starting booklets and any stretch goals that are unlocked. Full-color box will include the 32-page Peril on the Purple Planet adventure module, complete with wraparound cover and three-panel gatefold map. It will also include the campaign booklet featuring the Lost Tombs of the Ancients, Bestiary of the Purple Planet, and the Lost Tech of the Purple Planet, and any stretch goals that are included in the box. So uh, that looks to me like the sweet spot of this one. Yeah. See, Job, that's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or as Joe would call it, a box of crap. <laughs> a, a box of awesome crap. <laughs> but yeah, it's already hit its goal, so now we're just going for stretch goals. And they're already listed on the Kickstarter uh, as I scroll down. Oh, and the modules are on sale again, too, like they did with the chain coffin, where you can save 20% on the modules. Uh, so most of the modules are listed there. 
And the stretch goals are there. First one's at 12,000 all the way up to 38,000. Uh, so lots of cool stuff. Looks good. Yeah. And, and on the very next episode of this podcast, we will have Mr. Harley Stroh on as a guest to tell us all about the details of that stuff and the secret stuff that's not up yet. Woohoo! Yes. And just to make sure we catch everybody, some of the other contributions from Daniel Bishop, Tim Callahan, Edgar Johnson, and Terry Olson. So just to catch those people too. They brought the A team to this one. Yeah, it should be pretty cool. Okay, great. Now let's summon some emails. You've got mail. Message for you, sir. Summon email. Dun, dun, dun. Boy, all you had to do was put it up on uh, Google+. Plus. We needed emails, and the crowd's answered. I was thinking that as I built the show notes to, uh, the, for the emails, the, sh- the emails for the show notes today. I was like, wow, there's a lot of emails here. <laughs> so, yes, thanks, folks, for uh, answering that one call and uh, filling our mailbag once again. So who is our first email? Y'all want me to play secretary again? <laughs> we, we can make it gender neutral. Email monkey. <laughs> oh, Jim. All right. Well, our first one comes from Tony Hogard. Says, Dear Spellburners, I was glad to hear Thundar getting some love on your latest podcast. I also watched it, Booberry in Spoon, back in olden times. Thundar is my inspiration for how a barbarian should act. He wasn't unintelligent, he just didn't care about wizardry, danger, or subtlety. Any situation could be resolved by leaping straight at it, flaming sword in hand. Keep those shows coming. Judge Jim, it was a pleasure dying alongside you at uh, North Texas. Thanks, Tony Hogard. <laughs> it was a pleasure being TPK'd with you too, sir. <laughs> which game was that? Yeah, which game? I, I'm not sure. Uh, it, okay, it could have been so many of them. <laughs> it <laughs> could have been crazy. Michael Curtis murdering us all in uh, Metamorphosis Alpha, or it could have been Doug Kovacs having his way with us in uh, the Spine Wizard's Tower. Ah. Well, speaking of, email number two comes from Doug Kovacs. <laughs> Good I'll, timing. Yeah, I'll do that one just because um, I don't want to answer for it. it. I don't want to answer Doug's <laughs> questions. So I'll read them. <laughs> okay. Number one, this is from the infamous Doug Kovacs. Number one, I emailed you to your separate emails a while back. I can't remember what the question was. There was no question. That's why it was a, there was an answer. See, they're not hard to answer. There was no question. <laughs> okay. Number two. From the ghost of Ratface Slipshot. What Appendix N stuff has each of you have each of you read most recently? Don't you think people that read are smarter and cooler than people who don't read? Oh, Doug. <laughs> sure, sure they are. Is there any question of that? I, I think people that, that listen to podcasts are smarter than cooler than people who read, even. Oh, that's just the next grade up. Even better informed. So, um, but, but what about Appendix N, guys? What, what, what's the most recent stuff you've read? Uh, Silver Warriors by Michael Moorcock, for me, was the last one I read. Michael who? Michael Moorcock. Because every, <laughs> every fantasy game needs Moorcock. <laughs> and we are all 12, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I just picked up some Vance. I haven't had a chance to crack it open yet. Um, please refer back to Business Brain. 
Oh, is this your first Jack Vance? Yeah. You are in for an experience. You're going to love it. Did Did you get the big, like, omnibus dying world or? Uh, no, there's a used bookstore in, like, mid-state Florida that we sometimes drive through just for the heck of it. And What's it called? Uh, Cracker House Used Books. And it, <laughs> <Cool name. laughs> it, it is an awesome little store, and it's gotten to the point where we just call the guy on his cell to see if he's in, you know, the day before we plan on driving through. And we brought in, like, two boxes of books that we were trading back, and we only brought home a box and a half in exchange, so I think we did fairly decent. But he just had shelf upon shelf full of all the little yellow spines all the, you know, the, the Moorcock and the, um, uh, who? oh, shoot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like eight different authors that the books aren't in front of me. So my brain's going to blank on it because I haven't digested them yet. But just shelves of it that we just kind of shoved into boxes and said, these will go home with us. Well, this was actually a, a subject on Google Plus recently. What, so which Jack Vance book are you starting with? Uh, come back to me on that one. Okay. All right. Sorry. <laughs> How about you, Ask Gemma? Me too quick. <laughs> uh, I'm in the middle of uh, The Spaceborn by E.C. Tubb. Uh, oh, you got that, huh? I did, I, somebody, I posted a picture of it, and somebody was making fun of me because the used copy I got on Amazon was the large print copy. <laughs> Jen. <laughs> <laughs> somebody was making fun of me, but I don't have to read it with my glasses, so that's nice. <laughs> And uh, just before that, I I read a Edgar Rice Burroughs book I didn't know exists. Somebody put me on called The Lost Continent. It's a post-apocalyptic science fiction book Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote. Who knew? That sounds pretty cool. I mean, if you if you like those old pulpy kind of things, it was really very cool. It 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 kind of lends itself to super science because Edgar Rice Burroughs' science fiction devices from you know early twentieth century are all just magical. So it's, it's stuff you could take and put right into DCC or what I'm running. That's what I've been reading. Well, the last one I read was the was the Dying Earth, uh, the Jack Vance Dying Earth complete books, and that was like two months ago. So I'm I've been slacking, but I've been writing, so I have an excuse. Okay, so on to Doug's next question, number three. Any ideas for after hours DCC at Gen Con? What do you think the wizard Wayne Snyder should run? Keep the answer short, one or two sentences. I'm probably not going to use them anyway. Well, <laughs> bite me, Doug. <laughs> so, ideas? Oh, oh is Anyone? that the question? That's the um, question. What were your ideas for the After Hours DCC? You've been at them, Jen, so you know how those uh, run. Yeah, I think he'd recently posted something about... Uh, putting something together for the after hours deals he might be recruiting wayne uh like he used you at uh gary con to code co-judge multiple tables yeah doug, doug has used me more than once it's a, bit, a little embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> uh but you keep coming back <laughs> No, I, I, I have a specific. I have a specific one or two sentence uh, suggestion, uh, Mr. Kovacs. I would uh, greatly enjoy it if you ran some mutant crawl classics because that is one flavor of DCC I don't ever get to play. Ooh! And I gave him and, and I gave him a rule book so he could do that. Aha! Uh-huh. What about you, Jeffrey? Oh, sorry. Oh no, I was just say because he'll turn it inside out and run it, you know, through crazy dimensions I never even conceived of. 
I broke I, the rules. I went three sentences. Go. <laughs> yeah. You got you got anything, Toadlock? Uh, uh, something something's a black eagle. I got a bone to pick with that guy. All right, I, I got one. I got one. I think this is a good one. Reverse, reverse, sailors on the starless sea. And this builds on yours, Jim. Okay. Well, he ran that last year at Gen Con. I played. No, it. no, 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 no. With reverse, Joe. Reverse. No, no, no. Reverse, reverse. Okay. Oh God. So the Space Marines coming down with their laser pistols, and they can take you know uh, MCC for this. The MCC books. They come there with their laser rifles, and they're killing all of the, the beast men from reverse sailors on the Starless Sea. Oh, so a bug hunt mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's reverse, reverse. You know what I'm saying. I do. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's not even a whole sentence, Doug. Okay, so finally he, uh, he ends up here. It seems like I'm often DMing for other DMs who don't always get a chance to play. Ding. I know, yeah. <laughs> I know some of you aren't going to be there, but you might be at one in the future or at another con I attend. Okay. And that's, you know, the uh, dangling end of his missive. <laughs> it's like he got tired typing and just stopped. <laughs> no, no. no D- Doug is the James Joyce of email writers. It's all nonlinear. Next Who's email. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward silence. <laughs> oh, all right. Back to me. I don't care. Uh, Okay, email number three from Fred. Congrats on 24 episodes. Longtime DCC RPG fan. I look forward to each episode. Not really a question, but I wanted to give a shout out to all the DCC judges who have run demo games at stores and cons. Also, I want to include all the folks who have made apps, fanzines, modules, and yes, podcasts for spreading the DCC love. I think I take it for granted that there is all of the support for the game. So I wanted to say thank you to everyone who has shared their love for sword and sorcery gaming at its finest. Hope to meet as many of you as possible at Gen Con. Your pal, Judge Fred. Aw, man. Well, thanks, Fred. Yeah, um, thanks, Fred. You. Appreciate it. Well, not sure which Fred we'll be looking for, but uh, we'll keep an eye out for name badges over by the booth. And obviously the cool <laughs> Fred. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah. You see a guy in a blue tie and a leopard skin uh, caveman outfit, you know that's him. Man, you know, this is reminding me, <laughs> though. Um, Took a second, but... Have <laughs> um, you guys noticed that the DCC G-plus group is like 1,300 people now? Oh, is it? I hadn't noticed the size. Yeah. Crazy. Last I heard, yeah. it was like 1,000. Right. It's been, yeah, it took forever to break 1,000, and then it just, it just keeps climbing. It's awesome. Awesome I see watch. more and more people mentioning running their first DCC game, playing in their first funnel or something like that. So I still think there's lots of new folks coming into the folds here. Well, you know, Joseph has always said that, you know, he he made this game and then he he just now he doesn't think he needs to do anything more to the game. He just needs to get people to play it and they'll fall in love with it. So I I, I mean, we're all here because we agree with that statement pretty much. So Definitely. Well, I mean, there's no nastier place on Earth than online interactions, right? I mean, if you've ever set foot in uh, the Dragon's Foot Forum and things like that, people will just knife fight you over ascending or descending armor class. And the DCC RPG fan base is remarkably not that way. It's just the nicest group of people as a whole. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it is a nice group. There's not much controversy within the community and lots of different backgrounds. And I think we all respect each other's backgrounds and all just play a game we have fun with. So we're going to... Brings us all together. (laughs) Oh, this podcast got warm and fuzzy all of a sudden. Let's read another email. 
Kumbaya. Let's metal it back up. <laughs> All right. Email four comes from Terry Olson. Hello, Judges Jay. I recently finished listening to your Halfling episode and enjoyed it very much. Thanks for all of your hard work and time in delivering consistently high-quality podcasts. Thanks, guys. I really like Judge Job's simple formula for dual wielding. Since he asked for some community members to check his math, I did. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm not sure he was being kind by simple. He might have meant, like, math tard or something, you know, simple-minded. <laughs> well... He says, the math looks great for a non-halfling with agility 16 to 17, but the halfling's auto hit of 16 yields an additional advantage for the higher ACs. Yeah, Job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, enough you. (laughs) I note that this was already pointed out by Player Bob in the comments section for the episode. Inspired by Judge Job's approach, I expanded his work to account for all races and agilities. And the results are some really fancy maths that, uh, yes, maths plural. Um, that we're going to put on we'll, the website we'll, and not make yeah, you read. We'll just post those. <laughs> uh, he continues, if someone has already done this and I missed it, then I apologize for wasting your time. I've attached a spreadsheet and PDF for your interest. Thanks again for the great work and inspiration. Terry Olson. Well, and and thank you, Terry, for the awesome free RPG Day adventure. So it's great to see another one getting into the fold. Yep, very cool. Thanks. And uh, he's got like five things on here that are really cool. But um, anyone that's dual wielding, you can just kind of use this as a cheat sheet of of when you want to attack with one hand or, or two hands. So it'll be on the site. Yeah, man, that's awesome. Yeah, it's... um. You know, it's not something that I'm going to encourage my players to look at too much because I don't <laughs> want all the min-maxing on there. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I love DCC. There's not supposed to be that much math. I, I feel you, but it's like trying to run the, the time-traveling guys last night in mass combat. Sometimes you just got to suck it up and give your players all the crunch they want. I think I'm fine with it. I think it's reasonable. And if you're playing a halfling, I think it's valuable information to see. Uh, you know, and it's pretty basic that... I mean, she bre- he breaks it down into the five things, so it's not that hard. Okay, well, that'll wrap it up for emails. Uh, our email bag is nice and full now, but if you want to, like, overload it and make us work harder, you can contact us by writing the band at spellburn.com or on our forums at osrgaming.org. Um, let's go do a Dungeon Denizen. We haven't done one of those in a couple episodes. Yeah. It has been a while. Rawr. <laughs> Go on, boys. Chop his head off. Right, silly little beater. Jesus Christ! I warned you! My armor is like tenfold shields. My teeth are like swords. My claws spears. So our Dungeon Denizen uh, winner this week is Mr. Mike Lowe. And who wants to read us all about the Toadlock? I can read about it. I tend to read these. <laughs> uh, so he writes to us and says, Hey, Spellburners, in the spirit of the Wampler, I submit to you the Toadlock, a distant cousin of Judge Jeffrey. Besides their names, the Toadlock is also good at blunting the impact of large parties, much like Jeffrey. He does put a little smiley face on there. <laughs> uh so, the Toadlock, uh, got a nit plus three, 
uh, a bite or a staff, uh, sort of a low AC, um, a D10 hit dice, moves pretty quick at 35 feet, one action, can attack with the curses of, oh gosh, someone, I'm horrible at this, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, ask the dyslexic guy, because I'm just going to glance and blurt it out, but bubble blue blues. <laughs> there we go. Um And he details that, which we'll look at in a second. And can shoot boiling blood from the eyes at a five-foot range for 1d4, which I think is awesome. Um, He can add a plus one to war-toed brood's attacks if he leads them. Uh, And can hide behind cover, such as swamp bushes, for a plus one to AC. Uh, Leather walls for plus two AC, or stone walls for plus three AC. You see leather uh, walls? Yeah, I'm guessing ca- the hide walls, like hide skin walls, I'm guessing. Okay. Um, so in the swamps, there's hordes of frogloids and war toads. Uh, the most dangerous of these malevol- malevolent amphibians is their shaman, the toadlock. Fat, warty, toad-headed humanoids. Older and weaker than the average war toad, but mastered the arcane curse of... Yes, surrounded by a bodyguard brood of war toads. The toadlock enjoys casting his curses from the safety of a watchtower or behind a wall and then ducking away. So part of this is he wrote up a curse of... Jim? Bob Bug... Bug Bills. Bug Bills. Bobbledy Fart Smart. I don't know. So he talks with the... patron guy. Yeah, the frog patron guy. So he attacks with a D10, D20 plus 3 against the target's uh, personality as if it was AC. Must have line of sight. Range is unlimited. Uh, if the curse attack meets or exceeds the target's personality, roll 1D6 for a manifestation. The curse is only lifted if the toad lock is killed. And in here, it's got, if you're affected by the curse, things like running to the nearest water and compelled to float there like a frog. Uh Oh, that's not the best one. The best one is driven mad with lust, <laughs> run more at full speed towards whatever boss of Babobulas is lurking near and try it in a feverish attempt to mate with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good one. Uh, I get like that a lot. Toad lock. Yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Something for the liches. <laughs> So, uh, in the victim's skin erupts in warts. Uh, besides the shocking appearance, a victim touches an ally for any reason, including lay on hands. The warts transmit potent toxins, inflicting 1d6 damage. HPV. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the victim's body begins to swell grotesquely. In uh, 1d4 rounds, modified by luck, the victim will pop and die. Yeah. So, <laughs> lots of cool curses. And that is our Dungeon Denizens winner for the week. Well done, Mike Lowe. Yes, very well done. Do I need to run this illustration past you before it goes online? Oh, Jeffrey? no, surprise me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've got thick warty Will do. skin. I've got thick warty skin. I can handle it. <laughs> oh, well, that was a good Dungeon Denizen, and uh, we need some more of those too, right? Yeah, we could use a few more of those. Definitely yeah, good to have like some in the, the pool. The Brink Mind. No, that that that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no nah, thanks. <laughs> okay, let's go do some mercurial magic. Great all-seeing eye of Agamotto, you must come to my aid. Doesn't weird stuff happen when spells are messed up? I don't feel anything. <laughs> 
So that could have gone better. Material magic. All right, main part of the show: how to judge. Best ways to judge. We've all done it. Yes, we have. So I thought uh, maybe we just start off with uh, the basics, like knowing your players and your own expectations and how to set those. I mean, there's a lot of the rest of what we're going to talk about that just hinges on that. What are the players' expectations when they show up at the table, and what are yours running the game as a judge? Uh, I'll give a quick example. I'm telling my brother about the time travel mechanics I'm building into my adventure, and he sounds like that sounds like the perfect adventure for you. And I'm like, why? He goes, because you're a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> wow, thanks. <laughs> well, he knows me well. But, you know, the, yet with time travel, you have to do certain things to get the loops to close. What's the first thing you guys did, Jen? You One of the players where you were at the table goes, well, what if we just stay here until our our past selves come down here and we change the timeline? I mean, they went straight to it. True. And I had to go, that would be interesting. Let's see what happens. And, you know, get them to chicken out of trying it. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what that was all about? <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think a lot of the expectations, I mean, there's there's expectations for con games, and then there's expectations for, you know, the home campaigns, and they probably each have their slightly different form. I mean, for I tend to run home campaigns, and a lot of that's just pitch the idea to people that might play, and you can sort of attract similar-minded. If it's a group you're already playing with and you're changing games or something like that, then, you know, talk it over and, hey, I'm thinking about running this type of game and just trying to get mutual buy-in into the campaign. But it's just sort of state what you have in mind up front and uh, compromise and tailor it from there as you go a little bit, at least from the out-of-the-gate part. Well, right. And our, for example, when we very first started our DCC campaign before I was running anything, um, I mean, it was just a big table, 12 or 13 of us coming in and out. Uh, but it was people that did arrive with different sets of expectations. There were a lot of uh, players in their mid-20s who came to DCC straight from Pathfinder. And of the that group, about 50% of them... Uh, developed a liking for the old school style of play and and stuck with it and they didn't give up pathfinder they still play both but there was definitely a group that this was not my cup of tea and they you know progressively left the game to go back to pathfinder yeah and and it sorted itself out over time yeah and i think you just got to sort of let that happen i know my local group here we did some dcc i didn't judge it but the other gm in the group judged it and you know it was fun but i don't think it was a good fit for the whole group because some of them like a, a slightly different game, and it's just you just sort of let it run its course. I'm, I'm obviously a DCC fan, but it wasn't going to be the right choice to try to force it upon them, uh, you know. And then, meanwhile, my online group that started as a pitched as a let's play a few one shots, I'll string them together a little bit, turned into a full on campaign, you know, that took on a life of its own. So, so yeah, from that, from the judging, true. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, from the judging side, your expectations if you're starting fresh with a home campaign needs to be that you're going to. Well, it applies to con games, too. You're going to get first-timers and people without experience with what you're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I imagine a, a, a game store game or a con game, and several of you guys have more experience than I at that. But, you know, stating the, the – uh, shifting them into the old-school thinking, especially like you said, Jim, if you have someone come from the Pathfinder world, you know, you hate to see them get killed off in the first encounter. You're trying to – imagine setting the tone or the expectation the game's – sort of deadly smart plays needed is probably somewhat important in a con game, at least out of the gate to, I guess I've set their expectations correctly. 
I mean, at GaryCon, I had some first-timers who had never played DCC sit down at my table, and four hours later, they went straight to the deal area and bought the books, so I did something right. Yeah. yeah. Did you When you found out they were new, did you tell them anything in particular? Was there one big piece of advice you gave, or just try to make them comfortable and just roll with it that way? I immediately started making sure that everybody had the new guys had enough information to feel like their feet were on the ground, but uh, one of my judging tricks is to... Uh, co-op the other players who are also knowledgeable. Kind of like what I was talking about and what we did gaming this week when it broke into a five-way spell, spell duel. Rather than try and take that all on myself, I enlist knowledgeable players to kind of pitch in and help out. So at the con game, there was uh, I was that same game was fortunate to have Dieter Zimmerman and a couple other experienced players, Michael Bolum, and I just like put put them together with the new guys so as the game was rolling, they could sit there and kind of help direct them. You gave them yeah. gaming buddies. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> no, I mean, that's a really like good idea, it. though. I've, I've done that before, too. It's like kind of spread out the experience or, you know, mix together the seating for the experienced and the and the new beast and try to get, uh, you know, try not to have the, the DM bogged down in, in explaining all the rules to the new people. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a real good idea, spreading the experienced folks out as you learn their experience. I mean, con games are wild. Joe, you've read a lot of them. You never know what you're walking into. Uh, it's most often... Eight complete strangers who you don't not only don't you know, but most of them don't know each other. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's always scary when you go to a con game. I think I just you know people are gonna like just derail the whole thing with their freakish ideas. But um, you know, I want to keep them on track with my freakish ideas. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I've actually had pretty good experiences running games at cons. Probably the most, the strangest experience I had, which I, I was actually a player, um, was at NorwestCon 2013, and uh, I, I jumped in onto a uh, 13th Age game. I just I like playing, you know, all kinds of games. Even if I don't stick with them, I just like to try them out. And um, this one guy, uh, he, he was talking about Pathfinder when he start started the game, and um, about. A third of the way into you know this two hour maybe it was a three hour slot for an introductory game, he said, "I just remembered I have to go to Walmart, but I'll be back." And he got up. <laughs> what? And, and he left, and we never saw him again. <laughs> That's okay. Weird. That's unique. <laughs> and with no explanation. Well, that was his explanation, and we never saw the guy again. So those are the outliers of uh, con game experiences. But um, normally, you know, my experience has been, you know, people just want a game and have fun. So, Well, from the judging perspective, there's a, there, there's a different level of control. I mean, or DM fiat, whatever you want to call it, that you because you have a very set amount of time to get through the adventure. It's usually, usually either a four or six hour slot where if a game spills over in your campaign, well, you just pick it up, next, freeze everything and pick it up next session. Yeah, right, but, yeah. But it's a little more difficult with the one shots. You have to be sure that everything is done by the time that time slot is over. Well, right. When we were, uh, when, Job, when you were running us at Gen Con through the one who watches below, you skipped us through some stuff so we could get to the big finale. Yeah. yeah I mean, you know, if you're at a con game by necessity, necessities, you kind of have to steer people towards the adventure and everyone has to just assume that. They're all cool with it just because, you know, you're time crunch. You want to have fun. You don't want to dicker over whether you would go here, whether you want to, you know, chase, I don't know, snails or something uh, out in the east marches. And and 
by that token, you know, Job, you had the benefit of having written the material. You knew this thing like the back of your hand. You would think. (laughs) Touche. But there are a lot of these new people, like in the Google Plus group, they're going out to conventions and they're running games for the first time at these little conventions or even the bigger ones. Uh, so there's a lot of questions that have been put forth, you know, which adventures, which modules should I use? If I'm doing this one, should I do it as a funnel? Should I do it as a higher level to give people a different taste of of what the game can get up to? You know, which encounters should I trim off of this adventure to get it to fit into this time slot? And I, I love the, the fact that we've got the new players coming in. But it also kind of, I feel, falls on the rest of us as the community to help guide them in and say, no, you you probably don't want to do, you know, say, Colossus Arise as your very first game at a convention. (laughs) And at that, you might not want to do it even if you trim a little bit off of it. It might be a little too much to swallow at first. Definitely don't give any pre-gens out who have the King of Elfland as a patron. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, cross that right off the sheet. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's a good point though, Jen, because if you're judging this stuff uh at whatever experience level, it's it's the onus is on you to be as prepared as possible and and know the material inside out, whether you regardless of whether you wrote it or not, because you have to be prepared for sketchy situations sometimes. You run out of time. And conventions as opposed to home campaigns, you know, like you were saying, Jim, you're kind of selling that game. By running a game at a convention, you are representing the game and the whether or not the players come away from that and go buy the books in the dealer's room immediately afterwards. You're kind of the salesperson on that. So it's good if you know your material and, and have it prepared and don't spend you know an hour out of your four-hour slot with your nose in the book, too. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And I would say on top of that, you know, especially to, I mean, this might be old hat to, you know, DMs who who judge a lot of games, but um, don't be afraid just to just make a ruling and just go with it. I mean, don't, don't spend your time with your nose in the book and um, because it comes off more like, you don't know, you're talking about sometimes you'll get a player at the table that'll argue with you. I, I've been at plenty of tables where, like, they're saying the wrong thing, and I just, I don't care. I just go with it. <laughs> well, you're sort of, uh, even in your explanation of that, you're sort of doing a hand wave, but you're talking about something that's that, that can be crucial and make or break an individual game, which is uh, player agency. Because what you're talking about is, in in the name of a fun play experience, saying yes to a player request, even when maybe technically you know it's wrong. Right, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, if it's not a campaign play where it it's not going to affect things time after time after time, I I wouldn't have a problem with doing a hand wave. You know, and even in campaign play, I mean, we did this. We just recently in my group with this high level where they were wanting to do this cleave action and stuff, and it got a little out of hand in one session. And I think by the end of the session, everyone was, "Whoa, that was way overpowered." How we ruled that and. Between sessions, someone came up with a, a cool little Mighty Deeds table for Cleave that w- we could use for the game and went with that, which is much more in line. Okay, that seems more reasonable. Still cool, but more reasonable. So, you know, even in home campaigns, I hate to get bogged down in the 
minutia of of the rules per se, and I'll just rule it on the fly, and I try to rule it consistently until we've had a chance to address it. But um, even then, no one likes to sit around while the judge rules. You know, spends five minutes reading through the book trying to figure out is it plus two or plus four, and it's like who cares? Just go do it, <laughs> right? <you> exactly. Know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't be afraid to just make some crap up and keep going. If it takes you more than a minute or 30 seconds, then you're taking too long. Yeah. Here, here. I, I, I love flying by the seat of my pants, even though I'm not always excellent at it. And the and the key to that is just remembering what you, you decide and remaining consistent with it. Yeah, yeah, that's the second piece. Like the consistency to it, whether it's campaign or con play, it, once you rule it, play it that way until there's a suitable chance preferably outside the game time to to correct right. which but in a con yeah. means it doesn't matter in a home game it just means i've got a community group to discuss it between sessions instead of in our valuable face-to-face game time well d- also don't be afraid to give them all the middle finger and contradict yourself if they start hammering you over the head with some <laughs> ruling that you came up uh, pulled out of your butt well, yeah. I mean, I've, I, I've definitely seen uh, judges and DMs who, once they made a ruling, particularly uh, those of us with uh, testosterone in our bodies, you know, they're never going to back down no matter what from that. And I don't find that to be useful. I mean, there's there are times when a, when a, a, a re- retcon is appropriate. I've ruled the wrong way. And I find it easiest just to say, hey, I think I screwed this up. What do you guys think are fair and, and proceed that way? Yeah, that works. Getting the table buy-in on it works well, too. Well, it's all part of the player agency thing because I've thought about this a lot. I'm serious as a heart attack. The whole experience of having fun at the table is a kind of algebraic equation of risk and reward. And not all the players understand that. Uh, old school players understand it more uh, in general as a group. But, you know, I want a mount. Okay, there's a mount. Now, that wasn't any fun at all. I want a mount. <laughs> okay, well, here's what you might think about doing to go get you a mount, and it turns suddenly into a side quest. That, right. that, that when the player has gone through the steps to complete, they've, they get that feeling of, I really earned this mount. This is my mount. Just a different version of the same reason the character funnel is so much fun to play. Does that make it's sense? It's that accomplishment. Yeah, but it's my job to make sure that, it, that the situations are presented that way. Because players are players. They're just going to like, you know, I don't like this character. He sucks. I want to kill him. Give me a new one. Well, yeah, but look at what you can do. Did you think about this? You could try that. Does any of that make sense or am I just... Yeah, no, it makes sense a lot. Uh, uh, And I think that, you know, the converse to that rule is make sure you don't spend too much time on something that, you know, that they're not interested in. Make sure it's the key parts. But you're right. Yeah, I want them out. Yeah, probably not cool just to hand one out, but... You know, side quest to do it is good, but yeah, I, I I totally agree. Side quest is good as long as there's not six other players sitting there going, "Great, uh, what about us?" Yeah. So the answer to that mounts for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that could be an entire thing. You know, go go out into the wilderness and tame your mounts. Hey, there's a herd of pegasi right over there. That's, an, that's a hell of an adventure. Everybody's going to want to be in for that. Yeah. Yep. I, know, I always pull, you know, if a halfling asks for a mount, I'm like, all right, you know, sit on the warrior. <laughs> <laughs> There's your mount. <laughs> well, uh, how about this for a question? Uh, I'll, I'll do this Kovac style, so watch out. If uh, each of us were to ex- express our personal judging styles in one or two sentences, Joe, 
what would you say your, your personal judging style is? Um, I don't know. I don't know what my personal judging style is. Uh, Maybe that was a stupid question, and we'll just yeah. No, cut, no, cut no, 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 no. I think it's a good question. No, it's but a good I, question. I should, you put Job on the spot, but yeah, I'm on the spot. Okay, no, I'm going to say um, I like to my is to you know just roll with whatever the players want to do and try not to to cleave too close to what's what's in the adventure, what's written. I like to play it kind of loose like that. So in the past, oh my god, when I first started DMing, it was I was playing. Well, not when I first started DMing, but when I got reinterested in gaming, tabletop gaming, like with 4E, I would you know spend six hours prepping for a you know a two hour game, um, getting all the exact minis and doing video screens and all kinds of crazy crap. That I'm now I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> um, whereas now it's just like, all right, you know. Here's this adventure. What do you want to do? And as soon as they start going a different direction, I'm like, okay, let's let's go that direction. And I'll just look at the stat block for some other creature and reskin it on the fly real quick. So that's kind of my style now is low prep and just whatever the players want to do, just let them go with it. You know, sandboxy type of thing. Which is very in step with the whole uh, design aesthetic of DCC to begin with. Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, the older style play, it was definitely like that. Well, I think it was a design intention of Joseph when he wrote the game to uh, design a game for uh, older players who have day jobs and families and kids and not a lot of prep time uh, to get in the way of the fun. Right, yeah. I agree with that. How about you, Jen? What, describe my my style? Uh, Green. I mean, (laughs) I I envy your flexibility. Um, Yeah, yeah. I admit I come into this group with probably the least amount of judging experience under my belt because DCC is the only game I've ever run. Um, I started with, oh, I want to say maybe three or four sessions of home gaming and, you know, players weren't reliably showing up or, or even making the attempt, so... We took it to the store games, and shortly after that is when the uh, road crew thing started happening for 2013. So that was just perfect timing. And, you know, I, I ran a few at higher levels, you know, level two, level three, so people could see what things were getting into. And that's when people started asking for the funnel. They wanted that campaign play. So now it's kind of a hybrid because it's a it's a store game, so it's kind of a con game. I've got a set time limit, but I have some of the same characters. I'd say maybe 70% of the players sitting at the table are regulars, and the other 30% are rotating seats that new people come in. Well, you just and answered the question, how do you know if you're a good judge? Because if... <laughs> They, they keep showing up week in and week out. You know you're doing something, right? Something. Um, but because I don't do the the sandbox and the off-the-fly kind of stuff, there's a lot of prep. There's a lot of after-game uh, stuff that I've got to keep track of. And, you know, oh, they were going in this direction and they met this person. And, oh, they picked up a magical item. i got to figure out what the heck that was. And... <laughs> Yes, there's there's a bit of work on my end, but 
I kind of thrive on it as a research monkey anyway. I just, you know, it's a matter of making time for all of that and the gaming. And, you know, we're in the in-between locations at the moment, but we've got a couple new ones that we're scouting out because we want to kind of keep it in a public venue so that other people feel free to come on in and, and try it out without that sort of um, consternation about, oh, I'm going to somebody's house. I don't know them. And that so, way, they if they go into a public place, they're not obligated to stay. So it's a lower level of commitment, a lower bar to entry. Right. And the geographic location kind of matters for some of us because there's a handful of people coming from within a three mile or a three hour radius. So we want to try to get it someplace in the middle. So it's, um, yeah, the, that's why my game's on hold right now. But, <laughs> but yeah, new players come in from different games and I've got a copy of that uh, page from the front of the book with the introduction and how is this game different from what I've played before. And they can sit down next to one of the experienced players and, it's like nobody missed a beat. So, Doug Kovacs, my suggestion to you for the Embassy Suite Gen Con games is recruit Judge Jen as one of your co-DMs. <sighs> but Jen wants to sleep sometime. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, come on. You can murder us all just once. Yeah, you know, there's there's something kind of freeing about playing a, a con game or an open game because you don't know who's going to sit at the table whereas with the home campaigns I noticed you get the same people and they start that level of expectation I and- feel you I, I mean <laughs> I was a little ner- Doug wanted to play Mutant Crawl Classics I was a little uh, nervous about judging for Doug Kovacs until I'd already killed two of his level zeros two of his three level zeros and then suddenly I wasn't so nervous anymore okay so maybe that's what I need to go for a funnel <laughs> How about you, Jeffrey? What would your judging style be summarized as? You think? I believe it can be summarized as naked and on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say, at least for my online campaign, is they are always in trouble, always on the edge of, you know, they never know. I don't think they ever feel safe. But yet at the same time, they get their moments of victory, they get their moments of glory, so it it gives them the drive to keep going and keep continuing, but there's always this, you know, it's getting I don't know, it's always right on the edge, so sum it up as naked on fire. In a safe room. In a safe room, they, which they like to call the cheat room for some reason. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out now for the Toad Lock illustration how that can involve a guy naked and on fire. <laughs> Maybe that was one of the curses? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. But no, I just think that I tend to run somewhat of a gritty game, but with, like I said, punctuated with moments of, you know, of extreme success. But the party never, I don't think, ever feels completely safe. They're always worried about what's next. And uh, I, I don't know. I think it's cool. It keeps them going, keeps them on the edge of their seats as they, they go. So that's how I sum mine up, I guess. I know what you mean. My group last night, they basically, because I forgot to, it's Glipkaro's uh, Gambit's a level two adventure, and they were all three with one five, and I forgot to up 
any of that and account for it. So they just were blowing through everything. But if you asked them, that wouldn't be their assessment of what happened. They were pretty on edge and pretty spooked through most of the adventure. So as long as that's going on. Yeah. Now, if you err the wrong side, then it looks like the judge is out to get you, and it's not fun for anybody. So it's a fine line to walk, I think. But so far, it seems to have worked well for my online group anyways. Now, when I honed that tactic years ago in D&D 3.5, and I killed everybody at third level with an arachnid mouther with 15-foot reach and eight attacks, that, that I think, they did not think was naked on fire. That was just mean. and They still gave me, <laughs> they, they me a hard time about that. But, you know, you had to hone the technique somewhere. Hey, that's how we all learn on both <laughs> sides of the screen, right? Yes, yeah. I think, uh, I, I because I asked the question, I had the longest to think about it, the the... My personal judging style, the thing I want to try and bring to every game is a presentation that uh, has some kind of uh, sense of wonder to it, where that's stuff you haven't seen or experienced before. Or That's the part of DCC that appealed to me immediately and the most, is that it, it gave me back that sense of the unknown, you know, never being sure. The, 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 it's that same risk-reward equation the 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 fun you have of encountering things you don't understand and don't know exactly what they're going to do to you and then somehow survive it or even don't survive it i try and bring that to my players every game i mean i have a thing in my campaign where i guarantee every single game you're going to see at least one thing you've never seen in a tabletop rpg before last night it was a uh interdimensional uh, artifact that was a gate of the ancients that they were pretty sure they could have gotten open had it not been covered by a holographic force field that was uh, a bunch of necrotized pieces of other members of their village interwoven with uh, pipes and metallic wires. That freaked them out. One nice. guy went, oh my god, this is like Doom. Which That's the answer to the Corpse Gate question earlier. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't go near the damn thing. They were so spooked by it. <laughs> Yeah. That's what I like bringing to the table. What else do you like to bring to the table, Jim? I have made my personal judging style a little bit of every piece of the judges I admire. So I uh, try and stand and be as theatrical as possible, like Michael Curtis. I bark every once in a while just to make sure I have side talkers' attention, like Tim Cask. Um, <laughs> I try and do what Jim Ward does and always say yes and, 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 be as pleasant and friendly as possible because that can be scary too. <laughs> Man, what is it with Cask and that voice? I was talking to Doug at GaryCon and Tim Cask came by. I started talking and I couldn't hear my own conversation because Tim Cask's voice was in my head. Like I couldn't even concentrate on somebody a foot away from me. It's some kind of freaky power. <laughs> Tim's a great guy, but he is not a wallflower. <laughs> You know, I think one thing you mentioned there, Jim, and even if you're not theatrical, if you're sitting at the table and you you feel like you need their attention, stand up. If you're, you know, as the judge, I find that's sometimes useful just to stand up and that'll get your thoughts moving, get people to pay attention. Uh, Just the movement as a judge sometimes frees my mind, even if you're not getting getting off theatrical. Like, I don't think I've ever rent, I haven't played in a game you've run, but I know Michael Curtis, like you said, gets up and stands up and does motions and stuff like that, but... Even if you're oh, not to the point of Harley all over the place too. <laughs> oh, is he? I haven't played under Harley oh, yeah. either. Uh, but even just standing, I think, is a good thing, and I think it'll eventually lead to that where you start to mimic some things, and it just it adds to it. I think that's a decent tip and hint if you're finding things getting stale or dragging or slowing. Stand up and see how things go. 
And, and if you, you know, and this is something I learned from Jeffrey, if that doesn't work, just take off your shirt. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that works too. Whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> Wait. Sorry, guys, we're playing in a public place. <laughs> there are children there. Nice try, Joe. Oh, that was two, three visuals all at once. I'm not sure. <laughs> you can't do that to an artist. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... Uh, well, going back to what you said, Jim, that that's one of the reasons I was making it a point to try to play in everybody's DCC game. Anyone that was running it, I wanted to essentially sit at the feet of the masters and soak in their style creates a better performance for me. I mean, there's certain there's something you can learn from everyone. I've watched I watched uh, playing under Job at Gen Con last year. I watched him uh, exercise extraordinary patience. I mean, we kid around a lot here on the podcast, but Job uh, really put up with a cleric who was just not going to stop at seven disapproval. <laughs> he just was going <laughs> to keep going, and I might have even at that point said, "Listen, dude, give it a break. You're you're you're, you're killing." You're killing me here, but uh, Joe like handled a, it like a, a deific uh, intervention or something. Mm. Well, you, that, that, I mean, that was certainly not the wildest con group I've ever been a part of. But you definitely had two sides of the table with different ideas of how to go through the adventure, and you handled <laughs> yeah. it. With, you handled it with a plum. Thank you. I mean, I'm sure we've all been at that at that point somewhere where you're like, "Oh, come on! I wrote this adventure, and you guys are just walking away from all the good stuff to go, you know, harass this meaningless thing on the side." Oh, Todd Bun. Oh, okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, I was I just sneezed. Sorry. <laughs> and that's sometimes you. Get, I mean, that's a tough judge call. Your inst- my instinct. I am a control freak. Is to want to wrangle them back, and sometimes I choose not to. Because if they're having fun, why do I really care? They're not playing my adventure. Yeah, I think that's some of it. You got to gauge the the fun level uh, if they're having fun with it or not. I think in home campaigns you have more liberty to let them. Rome and hey if that's fun I didn't think that was going to be what you'd go after but go for it I'm, con game I don't know I might be more tempted to I don't know what I'd do in con game but home game certainly I mean it's one of the advantages of having a group like you tell us about all the time Jeffrey is they they will do so many unexpected things they're constantly keeping you on your toes I think your judging clause must probably be razor sharp from all that having to deal, deal and react to that and handle it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of reacting to, to them. And I think, it, you know, but one thing I do enjoy about that is even though I can't plan more than an index card ahead at any given time, <laughs> keeps me entertained too because it's not, okay, now you have to go here and then we're going to do this and that. It's more like I go along for the ride and just paint the picture for them as we go. So in a lot of ways it's really, really fun and been well worth, you know, sharpening those claws. Yeah, I love those moments of cooperative storytelling. I mean, that that's something that I don't really get a whole lot of in things like first edition, especially if someone's running from a module. So that the sandbox approach is, is really, really awesome from a player perspective. Sometimes you have to work around your own personal character flaws. I have no poker face whatsoever, which is why I can't play poker. Whatever I'm thinking or feeling is generally tattooed on my forehead. So knowing that, I roll behind the screen, but... They always know how I roll because of how I react. I've just started playing that up. So when I'm back there rolling initiative for the monsters behind the screen, they generally know where the monsters are coming in combat because when I nail it, I'm like, you know, (laughs) I just go ahead and go for it because they're going to see it anyway. Yeah, I think one of my favorite dice rolling uh, foibles 
I guess you could call it, um, was at the game of Harley Strohs I was at last year where he started, since he was standing up, he started having all of the players roll the monster's attacks and the damage against our own characters. It, it was a little demoralizing, <laughs> but it also made us uh, cheer a lot differently for the dice. I can't believe I've gone this long on the podcast without praising the judging skills of Adam Muscovich because I was paying razor-sharp attention to him when he re- when he came down to Cincinnati and ran us through that game because he had a very interesting and accommodating and affable uh, judging style. And he, his stuff was all out from behind the screen, including he had this little judge trick where when it was multiple monsters, whatever their hit die was, he just got that many of that die out in front of him and tracked their hit points by rotating the dies. And he didn't make a big deal out of it, and maybe two-thirds of the table didn't notice that was what was going on, but I was watching it. It was a good system for him to track stuff, and it was all right out in the open. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, he, he was very – I played – he ran one of the – he ran the arena – he was one of the judges doing the arena game at GaryCon, and uh, he was very good at the, yes, you can do that, but, you know, so he's really good at that. Anything you wanted to do, you could pretty much attempt it. Sometimes there's something that's going to get you, or at least a you know a chance something's going to go wrong. But yeah, he was real good at the uh, you know the player agency, letting the players yeah you can do that. He'd get right into it with you and have a good time with it. So yeah, almost to a level that's beyond uh, encouraging player agency. It's encouraging uh, player creativity because if you do something creative and get a good response to it, what are you likely to do next? Uh, yep, exactly. More creativity. Yeah, so yeah, he was really good at facilitating that. So, for those of us who have d- done it, uh, how about multiple judges and co-judges? I-, I have not personally ever done that. I watched you do it, Joe. I played under you doing it. Yeah, um, I've, I've done it a few times. Um, probably the most fun I had was was at Gen Con with doing it with Doug. Um, so, uh, we, we, we came up with some stuff that night, and, and actually... Uh, uh, I don't know w- which games you were in, but we did this one where there was like, um, uh, it was the like gangs of Punjar type of thing. <laughs> and then they came together for this battle, um, like a barroom brawl. So that was actually my idea. Beforehand, we were, I was sitting with Doug and I was like, okay, I have this idea that that we're going to have a barroom brawl and we're going to DM. One of us goes around the table and, and uh, you know, we, we both go clockwise around the table and we ask people what they do as we walk around the table. Um, and we'll have these cards in the middle of the, the table for all the monsters or whatever. And uh, it, it worked out pretty well. Um, I've, I've, I think there's a lot to explore with multiple judges that, that, that hasn't been done. Um, like, I think whole new game systems could come out of, of you know, being written for being run by multiple judges. Well, I mean, as as you may know, that's the origin of a lot of stuff back in the day. I mean, uh, Gary Gygax let some of his players run different levels in Greyhawk, and like one of those levels turned into Metamorphosis Alpha. Really? Right. Yeah. I just meant like simultaneous DMing or GMing or whatnot. Like, I think there's there's something there that hasn't really been explored yet. Well, there was the one at GaryCon this past year where you, Job, and Adam were running the two different tables with Doug just running around between the two like a little madman handing out little magic items. Yeah. And it was it was entertaining. And yeah, I think for for like a convention game or something it it 
could have its merits, but I don't know about doing it on a regular basis. I think at cons it works really, really well because of the, uh, like Gary Cons, my example, because that's the one I was at. But, uh, you know, there's a whole little DCC community there. Everyone wanted to play with each other, be in the same game with each other and stuff like that. And by doing the code DM thing, it let everybody go hang out, play, everybody have fun as a group, which, you know, a lot of ways just makes the community stronger because no one was left out. If, you know, I showed up a little late, they're like, oh, hey, you know, sit right here. There's room for you at this table, you know, and it worked really well for that. So in the, the, con scene i think it works really really well for folks you know uh to do that co-dm thing that's an excellent point because i can't believe we didn't talk about that somewhere on the show i mean there's a certain number of players that are all of our maximums we can comfortably handle in a campaign and at that point your choice becomes break the group into separate games or add on another judge right yeah yep okay been there (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can handle 12 or 13 at my table, and I have at, at, in my home campaign, but that dynamic quickly makes a campaign problematic, and it's more of you're just running one-off con-style games in a campaign setting. Well, and if that was a home game, that meant that everybody already knew each other, and you already had that uh, camaraderie built in. Yeah, it's still hard to get around and make sure everybody's happy and doing something. That's true. I actually had an experience with that where um, we we got so big that we split into two groups, and we actually had an awesome night where um, the I was the DM of one group and Rob uh, Rob Bogdan was the, the DM of another, and we came back together and uh, our groups fought each other like in a PvP type of little scenario that we wrote up. It was pretty cool. So real quick, let's just go around and sound off what our ideal number of players at the table is. We'll just go joe jeffrey jen and then me you 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 have complete control over how many people are in your regular game how many is that joe uh i would say five maybe six it would be the ideal um i can i'm pretty comfortable with handling up to about eight eight ish people but beyond that it just gets too confusing and, and gets slow for me how about you jeffrey yeah the five is my magic number for my ideal number uh in a home game, for sure, five is my ideal number. Uh, in a con game, I would take on probably very much like Job eight. I think I could do pretty well. Much beyond that, I start to get worried. Is everyone getting their their stage time? Uh, you know, is everybody getting their chance to to do stuff? And am I interacting with everybody well enough? But a five is my ideal number. How about you, Jen? Um, uh, you know, probably. Six, maybe seven. Um, I've done up to, I think I had ten players plus me at one point. And yeah, that's just a bit much. And and with DCC, if you have seven, that means you can ideally represent one of every class. Good point. Yeah, my answer for this has changed in the last two years. Uh, prior to a couple... Prior to DCC, I would have said four is my ideal number, maybe five. But uh, I've gotten really happy running a, a regular table of eight. I mean, maybe I, it, less than that is fine, but uh, eight is a nice number. Partly for what you said, you get some representation of all the classes. Well, it's harder to TPK a large table. That's a downside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what you're talking about because if that if if I absolutely positively had to TPK them overnight, I could do it anytime I want. 
yeah, but then you you can't <laughs> guarantee the player like, enjoyment. Like the, like the internet meme of the cat behind the DM screen. Mountain falls on you. You all die. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that should just about wrap it up for the show. Has anybody else got anything, any tips or tricks they're dying to share? I think that's it for me. All right. This was an excellent show. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, it was fun. It was good Thank to you. Talk Thanks for up the notes. Uh, next episode in a couple of weeks will be Mr. Harley Stroh. Look forward to that. And but who? <laughs> Come on, man, Strodor. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> right? He'll probably rip me apart like he did to Michael on the uh, spell dueling episode. <laughs> Do you ever get the feeling that the thing going on between those two is maybe not as pretend as it's supposed to be? Nah. Yeah, I think it's pretty pretend. I'm not so sure. Well, we'll ask him when he's on here next week. <laughs> it's like wrestling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. Oh, it's not real. I want it to be real. <laughs> anyway, until next time, never split the party unless the party's already split. Not everyone. Have a good one, guys. Bye-bye. And we're out. Cool. The Spellburn Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Spellburn theme music is provided by the band Glitter Wizard. You can find them at glitterwizard.bandcamp.com. Judges' robes for this episode were provided by Strodor's Purple Planet Emporium, where the elite meet to die on their feet. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Spellburn.